Norse saga. Let us praise the immigrant who leaves the tropics and arrives in Chicago in the dead of winter. Let us praise the immigrant who has never worn coats, who must bundle up against an unimaginable cold, for they will write letters home that speak of it like Norse saga, with claims that if a frigid hell exists, the entrance is hidden somewhere in the city. Let us praise the immigrant who fears the depths of the subway, the disappearance of landmarks to guide them through the labyrinth. Let us praise the immigrant who dreams of the pleasures of sunstroke, who wakes each morning to the alien sight of their breath suspended in the cold city air. That's poet Dan Vera reading his work, Norse Saga. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. We close National Poetry Month with Dan Vera. Dan is a first-generation Cuban-American whose poetry sings of multiple identities, ethnicity, geographies of migration and displacement. With imagery that's tender, witty, and surprising, Dan Vera navigates the linguistic shoals of English and Spanish and explores how language can bring us together and pull us apart. Dan's latest collection of poems is titled Speaking Witty Witty, and it was awarded the 2012 Letras Latinas Red Hen Poetry Prize. Norse saga comes from this collection, and on the face of it, it's an odd topic for the Texas-born son of Cuban immigrants. I wrote the poem after living in Chicago. I lived in Chicago for two years, and uh, my parents had lived in Chicago for two years when they first came to the United States. Back then, you know, you had to be claimed by someone, and the only person that they knew was a Swedish Salvation Army captain. Her name was Captain Carson, La Capitana Carson, and I grew up hearing her name invoked as a saint. She had known them. She had worked in a hospital. My father had been a nurse during the revolution in Cuba. And she knew them, and she claimed them. She brought them to Chicago. February of 1962, they had never left Cuba. They had been born and raised there. They didn't own coats. I grew up hearing that story, and I grew up hearing the refrain that Dad would say, if there's a frigid hell, the entrance is hidden somewhere in that city. Whenever Chicago would come up, he would just get this look on his face, this pained, uh, chilled look, and he would say that phrase, which always made us laugh. And then uh, I had the opportunity to take a job there. And I remember when I called, I was living in Denver at the time, I called to tell them he got very quiet and he said, Daniel, I did tell you about Chicago, didn't I? And, but back then, I, I, what I didn't comprehend was what it must have been like for them. They were my age, time I was living there. And my mother came and visited. It was the first time she'd been back in 35 plus years. It was arresting for me to just see this woman on those sidewalks to walk around those blocks and have her tell me the story of those two years when they were utterly lost, where everything was in a completely foreign language, where she was afraid to take the L train because if it went under a tunnel, she wouldn't have any way of navigating. It was all visual for her to imagine her and to imagine the two of them attempting to do this thing, to come to a country in a different language, was really moving to me. So the poem really kind of comes out of this comprehension that hopefully we're fortunate enough to get about what our parents went through. And if we're the children of immigrants, sort of what it takes to leave 
everything you know and go into a completely different place, especially in those days when there wasn't a community. It was also, for me, it was also instructive about American history at that time. The people in that neighborhood, it was a working class neighborhood at the time, and it was mostly Eastern European. So most of the people living in that neighborhood were immigrants from the Eastern Bloc. You know, they found sort of common cause between these two Cubans with their little baby and whatever they had gone through leaving Estonia. And so that was really amazing, too, to think of them in that setting. You were born and raised in Texas. Yes, I was born and grew up in South Texas, a very small town, Raymondville, Texas, which is down in the valley, and then Corpus Christi, Texas, for most of my childhood. Was in Texas through college. Cubans living in South Texas. That's a little unusual, isn't it? Very unusual, (laughs) yeah. Did you feel different or out of place at times? Yeah. It came out when I would speak Spanish. Uh, People didn't assume I spoke Spanish as a kid, and then I would speak Spanish, and people would say, oh, where are you from? And I would say, well, I was born here and raised here, but my family's from Cuba. And they'd say, oh, uh, Cubano. And then we'd visit relatives uh, infrequently, but we'd visit relatives in Miami, and I'd open my mouth to speak Spanish, and they'd say, where are you from? And I'd say, uh, well, you know, my parents are from Cuba, but... You know, I grew up in Texas, and they say, oh, Tejano. So, you know, it was this kind of complete mixture of cultures and, and language. I was just recently back there for the first time in about 30 years, and it was really amazing to sort of be in that space and feel uh, the resonances of the song of the birds and the trees. And Did you feel at like home? I did. The minute that the doors opened, and I felt the warmth. There was something... The sort of wet warmth, uh, rain was sort of coming in. And from that moment on, it was kind of this memory of not places as much as the environment, the feel of it, the feel of the air, the the sounds of so much birdsong in that part of the country. It's a tropical part of this country that most people don't know about when they think of the border. But uh, just being back there just brought back all these memories I didn't even know resided uh, that have sort of lived inside of me without knowing they were there. It was just pretty magical. Well, your book, Speaking Witty Witty, looks at memory, you know, pretty specifically. It's divided into five parts, and one of the parts is called The Trouble with Memory. So trying to grapple with memory is something I'm sure your parents did, too, with their memories of Cuba Yeah, I think it was connected to the experience of being away. I mean, not only away from Cuba, but also away from so many people. I think if they had decided to settle in South Florida, it would have been a radically different experience. Mm -hmm. But there was something about exile upon exile, sort of double and triple. And and sort of the feeling that from one, one generation removed. For my parents, it was about not only things that they miss, their family members, but also the, the land and the what they would describe, the flowers, the birds, the songs, all those things. I mean, looking back uh, as an adult, sort of remembering really these incantations of loss, the names of things. Again, this is uh, really 1970s and 80s. And of course, nowadays, you can go into a grocery store and have access to a lot of things from different parts of the world. But back then, it was just it was impossible to access a lot of those things. And, you know, food and language and song, those things are so connected to memory. And I think immigrants now have much more access to those things in a way that 
you know, my parents just didn't have. So it was always this, the experience of sort of growing up in the world we, we knew, and yet at the same time, the background of that, one of the backgrounds was my parents' sense of loss and missing and what was left behind. Well, one of the things they left behind was food, and you write about food a lot. One of your great poems that centers on food, Mama Makes the Local Paper. Oh, I love that poem, yeah. Please read it. Mama Makes the Local Paper. Because Cuban food in South Texas is like dishes from Venus or Mars, a reporter is sent to interview Mama. She cribs the recipes from Cocina Croya and is photographed with her plates in her nicest dress and a bouffant the size of her pressure cooker. The reporter asks, is it spicy? And betrays the fear that if a name is accented, it will surely burn your tongue. My mother demures and reassures that the spices we use are onion and garlic, but wisely withholds the amounts which would undoubtedly alarm the stomachs of middle America. It's 1974, and Corpus Christi, Texas, has never seen a thing like this. Looking back at the newspaper clipping, my mother appears now as a pioneer. Boldly, she made the first fricasse south of San Antonio, the first ajiaco, the first ropa vieja, and certainly the first congri. Where are the historical markers to the persistence of cooks who held fast to the old plates, who made flan in the new world? Food is one of those cultural mm-hmm. landmarks that people want to take with them and search for ingredients. Sure. And- I have vivid memories. Um, my sister and brother and I would sort of laugh about living in Corpus Christi, Texas, and on the rumor that somebody had had some frozen Cuban fruit of some kind, you know, we would sort of jump in the car and drive, drive to the nearby town for mame in pulp, usually sort of fruit pulp or something. I mean, now it's a completely different reality, but boy, back then it was just so hard. You know, it was about uh, searching for these things. And if not, then sort of finding some other way to alter or adapt the food that was made. We often lump Hispanics together, but obviously there are very real differences. And the very words in Spanish could convey totally different meanings. Yeah, I mean, I quickly learned, and I still continue to learn, uh, there's, you know, there's so many different nationalities and Latino cultures in the United States, and I've had the opportunity to live in different parts of the country, and words can be a minefield sometimes. You know, they can have completely, radically different meanings, uh, depending on what community you're in. And so it's, it's been interesting to sort of kind of live with these multiple meanings of words. And in Tower of Babel, you write about that very thing. Please read it. Tower of Babel. Exegesis of a funny story in which my father asked for change. Change being menudo for Cubans, menudo being tripe soup for Mexicans. It is 1966 in Dallas, Texas. My father makes his request to the owner of a Mexican restaurant who is delighted to comply and asks how much menudo he'd like. My father replies, $5 worth. This is 1966, and the owner asks if my father brought a container to carry home $5 worth. Considering it a joke, my father smiles and replies, I'll carry it in my hand. Thinking of the gallons, the owner is not amused and insists on a container. Then the shouting commences, as neither man can be convinced he is not dealing with an idiot. 
My father keeps pointing to his palm while the owner makes the shape of a vessel, and they grow angrier with each other. Finally, one of my father's friends rescues him from the exchange, takes him aside, and explains the difference. Are you as comfortable in Spanish as you are in English? No. I mean, I'm, I spend the majority of my life in English. I write in English. Uh, I have a you know, fluidity with, with English that I don't have in Spanish. I mean, my comprehension is good, and I love reading work in Spanish. But, you know, I'm an English speaker and an English writer. And at the same time, I'm sort of stunned by the way in which Spanish terms and words kind of pop up and, and have sort of a hold. It's one of the beauties of, of good translation because uh, trying to capture at least the spirit and the essence of, of the word is so difficult to do but so important. So many of your poems use Spanish words and phrases, and I'd like you to read one now. How about Ambrosia on Four Legs? Yeah, this poem begins with an epigraph by Richard Blanco from a poem I was tickled by when I came across called Havanasis, which is uh, his attempt to tell the Genesis story as if it had taken place in Cuba. This is titled Ambrosia on Four Legs. I never get asked to read this. I'm sort of delighted. (laughs) Ambrosia on Four Legs. But he wanted something more exciting and said, enough, let there be pork. And there was pork deep-fried, whole-roasted pork rinds and sausage. I tell my father they think it traveled on birds who flew across the Pacific and passed it to the pigs. Pobres puerquitos, he says, who then passed it along to the farm workers. Pobres campesinos, who then passed it along the line to some American tourist. Pobres turistas. Mama walks in and asks, Swine flu? ¿Qué es eso? Technically, it's called H1N1 influenza. ¿Pero qué es eso? Swine flu? Pigs? You can't eat any pork. She looks at me and says, I've lived long enough. I'll take my chances. What brought you to poetry? How did you get hooked? It really wasn't until college. I was a history and anthropology double major. But the last semester of my last year in college... Uh, was the first Gulf War. And at least in my small liberal arts school in Texas, there wasn't a lot of conversation happening about what was happening. But we were all thinking about it and concerned about it. And somehow I found myself writing journaling, which isn't something that I really did much. But I clearly had to work something out about how I was feeling about what was promised to be a short war. And I found myself writing it in verse form, which stunned me. And then even more surprisingly, sharing those poems, uh, which I probably wouldn't share with anybody today, uh, but sharing those poems with friends of mine. And really, I was struck at how they felt I was sort of talking about something that no one was really speaking about. There were concerns about what a war meant for our generation. And I just continued, really, I started reading more poetry, going back and reading Whitman and Dickinson. And then I remember out of of college, about a year after that, stumbling into a used bookstore in Tacoma, Washington. I think bookstores are sacred places. And I came across a small little volume of poems by Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet, one of his posthumous works, El Libro de Preguntas, The Book of Questions. And I was absolutely 
mesmerized by the poems in that book. I've described it as that moment in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy's cabin lands, and it goes from sepia to glorious technicolor. I, I had no idea that language could move in that way, and, and I think I was just hooked. I mean, if the, something that I was sort of like doing on my own. I mean, I do believe that poets are ultimately moved to poetry from some sense of gratitude and sort of emulation of the work of other poets who have kind of moved them. And, and in some small way, we try to be in conversation with the poets who moved us. I was yeah. just going to ask you that. It's not that I want to do what the poet does. It feels as if a window has opened into like another, yet another room in the house of poetry, if I can be that grand. And I think good poetry sort of gives us permission to explore our lives in new directions. And I feel very fortunate to have come across that book by Neruda, but also his other works and the works of other poets and and books in other languages. And it's just a very wide world of possibilities. Well, your book, first of all, the title, please, Speaking Witty Witty, what is that? Speaking Weedy Weedy uh, refers to a phrase that my father used growing up. When my parents came to the United States, they, I mean, they spoke maybe just a little bit of English, but not, not much. My mother went back to school, got her degree. My father never uh, learned much English. He sort of ministered to Spanish-speaking congregations. He was a Methodist minister, so Methodist Cubans in South Texas, it becomes a census group of like 15. But he never learned a lot of English, so, he, you know, we were always asked to speak Spanish, especially at the dinner table. I'm the youngest, so when I came along, all of the siblings, we spoke English. You know, we were sort of English dominant. And whenever we got a little too carried away in the English, he would say, stop speaking the weedy weedy. He'd say weedy weedy, which we think, we just figured it was sort of what English must have sounded like to him. And we thought it was very funny. Uh, since the book has come out, you know, it's been interesting to find out that Weedy Weedy, someone sent me a link to a uh, Mexican Norteño band that has a Weedy Weedy song. They use it in the sense of yada, yada, yada. Let's hear the poem. Weedy Weedy. The language holds us together. How you are bathed in it. Till you tire and run or are pushed away from the tongue by parents who'd spare you the hurdles they jumped. The language pulls us apart, how we are bathed in it, made to never forget, reprimanded for not speaking it by parents who would not be left behind. En esta casa se habla español, no se habla el weedy weedy. Demands for the sounds from that singular place with its undeniable song. How did your parents react to the fact that you are a poet? I'm fortunate in this in the sense that they both knew poetry and loved poetry, and I have very sweet memories of my father and my grandfather, who I was close to, reciting poems by Jose Martí, who's a great Cuban poet and kind of the father of kind of the George Washington of Cuba, modern Cuba. So they would recite his decimas, which is the, the folk form, and also other poets. And so I grew up in a family that understood poetry, that respected it, my grandfather wrote poetry, more sort of religious uh, poetry, but there was a sense that writing poetry wasn't this odd thing. They have been delighted. They were delighted when my first book came out. They've been tickled when the second manuscript won a prize and was able to be published. Yeah, so I, you know, I think in most Latin American countries, there's a sense of poets existing and being part of 
society and the culture that's uh, they have not so Americanized that it's this odd, <laughs> odd thing for them. Fortunately, I've never thought about it quite like that, but I think it was it was something they could wrap their head around. Clearly, they were sort of concerned about viability, but I, I think they're delighted that these stories that in some way I'm sort of capturing some of their experience. And that's been a really interesting process to be part of. Well, you mentioned Jose Marti, and uh-huh. you have to read the poem, The uh, Commemoration of Forgotten History. Oh, boy, I'm so glad no one ever asked. <laughs> so, yes, Commemoration of Forgotten History is in this poem. My grandfather, uh, Abuelo, is the term I use, Antonio, Antonio Triana, name, name him by name. Anyway, he was quite, uh, I don't know what the term is, a uh, Marti file, or this title, Commemorations of Forgotten History. We are tired Cubans in the Catskills, standing by the side of the wooded road outside of Haines Falls, New York. We have come this far to see the exact place where José Martí wrote his simple verses. The grand lodges of the leisure class are gone. The town the poet's doctor ordered him to has largely disappeared into the dust. Abuelo is upset to find no historical marker, no cognition in the eyes of the townspeople who are oblivious to the sacredness of this spot. Expecting statuary and murals, he is flabbergasted in disgust. How can they not know Martí was here? He is a romantic for the romantic, heroic for the heroic apostle of liberty. Making peace of it, Abuela suggests we do it ourselves. The falls that gave the name to this place still flow under an arched bridge of stone, like the verses that bubble forth from his tongue. Abuelo Antonio recites the simple verses, commemorates where there is no commemoration, marks the spot where a poet once wrote his simple song. What inspired this? Did this actually happen? Martí is somebody who... I've lived with in one way or another most of my life. Um, most people know, if they know Martí, they know he wrote the lyrics for Guantanamera. It's probably Cuba's most famous song, sort of the national song. You know, when people try to define Cubanness, even to this day, Martí is a figure. He is the founding figure of, of a liberated Cuba. Some years ago, I picked up a copy of his Simple Verses, and I was struck to have a little weird little factoid on the back of the little volume of his poetry, that he had composed this in Haines Falls, New York. And I was like, what? I mean, this is probably the Ur-Cuban text. And I was stunned to find out it wasn't written in Cuba, that Martí, this consummate Cuban figure, wrote the work that is so synonymous with Cuban identity, not in Cuba, but in exile. So, you know, even that work is not only Cuban, but also very much American. He was a, for a longtime journalist in New York who wrote some astounding commentary on 19th century America and 19th century democracy, urban life in the United States. So to find out that Martí's work belongs in the American lexicon as much as it belongs in the Cuban was really eye-opening to me. So the, the poem was in some way trying to sort of imagine the figure in my life who brought me Marti, my, my grandfather my, and my, my grandmother who, who appears at the end of the poem, these two figures who brought me Marti, imagining them in this place uh, in New York in conversation. There's so much history that is recorded in stone 
and yet so much more history that isn't. The last section of the book is titled A Guide to the Imaginary Monuments, and was my attempt to imagine, you know, what these monuments would look like, not only sort of recording history, but also recovering a lot of hidden history. One of the current projects you're working on, it's called Pintura Palabra. Yes. Tell me about it. So Pintura Palabra is a project of Letras Latinas, which is an initiative housed at the University of Notre Dame, but it's basically a a project to support Latino letters. So the prize that published uh, this book, Speaking Weedy Weedy, is co-run by Letras Latinas uh, and Red Hen Press, my publisher. So uh, Pintura Palabra is this really wonderful project that brings Latino poets, Latino writers, uh, because now they're doing some prose work as well, brings writer, Latino writers together in connection with the Smithsonian exhibit of Latino art. Held. And that's called Our America, the Latino Presence in American Art. That's right. And my understanding is it's the, very, it's the first large-scale exhibition of artwork by Latino Americans put on by the Smithsonian. And it was a fantastic exhibition, and I was fortunate enough to be among the first group for a series of workshops in ekphrastic poetry. Ekphrastic poetry is poetry written in conversation or in response to artwork. And I'd never had this experience of writing ekphrastic poetry, so it was kind of a new experiment for me and and one that I very much enjoyed. And there isn't a lot of Latino ekphrastic poetry, and so it's this really great synergistic connection between the exhibition and these gatherings of poets. I was fortunate enough to be part of the first one, but as the exhibit has traveled, it was at the um, uh, Smithsonian American Art Museum here in Washington, but it's traveling around the country. And in each one of these places, Letras Latinas has brought together Latino poets and writers to write uh, in response to these artworks. Poet Lore then got into the mix, and Poet Lore is... Poetler is the oldest poetry journal in the United States. Uh, Walt Whitman uh, famously was published in it, so it dates back to the 19th century. Poet Lore published the very first collection of poems that were created uh, out of that first group of poets. And that's the current issue of Poet Lore. That's correct, yeah. Dan Vera, I'd like to end with another poem. How about The Forgotten Fruit of Cuba? The Forgotten Fruit of Cuba. We are in the kitchen when my parents begin speaking of the forgotten fruit of Cuba. Remember Anon? asked Mama. Una fruta blanca, says Papa. Filled with tiny seeds, my mother adds, but nothing in the world tastes like that. The litany continues. Juanavana, mame, melocoton. Melocoton? That's peach. We have peaches, I say, and point to my yogurt. But nothing like the peaches in Cuba, my mother says, and my father nods in agreement. They stare at the plastic container as I take another spoonful of melocoton, or durazno, as the Mexicans call it, into this mouth that has never tasted the forgotten fruit of Cuba. Shangri-la, my mother says. Shangri-la, my father repeats. A far away look comes over their faces as if their tongues had activated a memory from a hundred years ago, perhaps from another dimension that only exists in their dreams. Dan Vera, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure. 
That's poet Dan Vera. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Mamá que me estoy quemando, en no quemándome yo hay.